Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of June 10th. Jim Henson back again, director of the Texas Politics Project here at the University of Texas at Austin, where we are recording this in the Liberal Arts Development Studio with the crack team of studio technicians. Uh, I'm happy to be joined again today by Josh Blank, Research Director for the Texas Politics Project, also here. Good morning, or afternoon or evening, I guess, depending on when you're listening to this. It's morning for us, so we'll we'll stick with morning for now. Um, much of last week's podcast was about how elected officials were interpreting the 2018 election as they went into the legislative session, and we talked a little about pointing towards 2020. Well, since we were together talking last week, uh, elected officials in the state have been, you know, out there and and talking about things and transitioning to how the session gets framed for the 2020 election season, which is, for all intents and purposes, underway. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, starting, I don't want to say starting at the bottom up, because we'll, we'll be talking mostly about the governor here, I think. But I mean, I think early, or it's, I think early last week, or at some point last week, the Speaker of the Texas House, Dennis Bonin, came out and basically said, to all of the members of the legislature, or at least of the House, that if they campaigned against any incumbent, so that means, you know, if you're a Democratic, you know, state House member and you go and help someone running against an incumbent Republican state House member, or vice versa, if you're a Republican state House member and you run and campaign against uh, a Democrat, again, in another, an incumbent Democrat, he was going to punish you. In no uncertain terms, if he was the speaker, if he is the speaker in the next session and you come back and you campaigned against an incumbent. There would be consequences. There would be consequences. And he made that very clear, which was, you know, an interesting sort of, I mean, it's an interesting statement, right? To kind of set the gap, yeah. set, set it down right there at the beginning, even of the campaign season. Yeah. I, th- I think this raises probably two questions. If you're, if you don't follow this super closely, um, you know, one, how unusual is this and why why do this? And then two, what are these consequences? And so, you know, the unusual part is, you know, this is one of those things that for people that that follow the legislature and, and work there, there was a real feeling that the Bonin speakership was kind of a return to an old school model of how the House and the legislature, but particularly the House, used to work in which there was a lot of in-group solidarity, shall we say. And even if there were party differences, that you muted those party differences in campaign season so that everybody could get along and do things, even if there were differences during the session. And so I think there is a certain amount of, it doesn't mean that nobody didn't sneak around or you know that there weren't some personal things that happened, but by and large, there's a real reassertion here, I think, of a, of a particular kind of role. And it's a, as a public stance, it's interesting because it resonates with the way that Bonin projected he was going to run the session. And it also projects publicly an air of kind of agreement, comedy, willingness to get things done, but with kind of a, 
you know, a punch behind it. And then that comes down to what the consequences are as the speaker. You know, I would guess that if you ignored this advice and you were a Democrat or a Republican, you got involved in primaries. And I think, frankly, it's probably more potent toward Republic, toward Democrats in a certain kind of way. I mean, it's potent towards everybody. But remember, the speaker makes makes committee assignments. And in the legislature, your committee assignments really have a big impact on your reelection chances, your ability to serve the district. I mean, if you're if you live in an urban or suburban district, you don't want to get stuck on the agriculture committee, to make a simple example. So, I mean, not to be skeptical or even cynical, would are you saying that there is no politics at play in this <laughs> pronouncement by the speaker? No, I mean, I, I suppose that's what I'm implying, is that the politics of this work for him as well as the tradition. I mean, if you're a speaker of the House and you're telling all the members to stand down in combating other members, but you're in the majority and a slim one in an election, you're expecting that to be some competition. You're making it a little easier for everybody, but it's, this is a better break for Republicans than it is for Democrats. Okay, just, just wanted to make sure. No, I want to make sure I was no, clear. Well, you know, cynicism is a cynicism is a hard-edged word for this. Well, I said maybe. Maybe cynical. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, okay, so... So, so Bonin comes out earlier in the week and then, you know, not to be undone or not to be outdone, uh, Governor Abbott then sits down with Jonathan Tylove of the Austin American Statesman. I think he did some other things, but Jonathan got the, got the main, uh, Jonathan's a friend of the podcast and maybe even we'll, hopefully we'll get him in here before this is over. Hopefully soon. Um, Governor Abbott sat down with Jonathan Tylove and Jonathan Tylove had a, actually for him a little bit short, long for the average person, but only one jump in the newspaper. Um, interview with, with Governor Abbott that was, you know, headlined basically something like, I thought I had it printed here, but I don't, um, you know, Governor Abbott seeks to, you know, define Texas Republicans in 2020 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's this. like as the party of, you know, getting things done or whatever or something like that. Yeah. And, and what it really underlined was that one of the things that Texas Republicans are doing, which is not new is trying to distinguish the Texas Republican brand going into an election in which the governor and other statewides are not going to be on the ballot and their national leader, Donald Trump, is because it will be a presidential election year. And so they want Republicans to vote up and down the ballot for Republicans. And he wants to remind, you know, independents and probably the small band of anti-Trump Republicans that Texas Republicans still do their own thing. And again, to be somewhat political about this, but that's what we're talking about in election year, that Texas Republicans can be distinguished from national Republicans if necessary. Right. And I think, you know, they're looking at, at 2020 and it's sort of, you know, I would say this, you know, we're, we're technically, I'm putting, I'm using the quote fingers right now. We're technically experts in this and it's it's hard to really handicap what the 2020 elections in Texas are are going to look like from a you know like from a, a competitiveness standpoint right i think on the one hand you had the uh outcome of the 2018 election right where democrats picked up two congressional seats two state senate seats and 12 state house seats and you'd say wow that's a pretty impressive gain for Democrats, especially in a midterm election. Usually midterm elections are, are relatively low turnout, especially compared to presidential elections. 
And usually, even if Democrats were to make gains in a presidential election, you'd, you'd expect to see some of those gains clawed back by the majority party in the midterms. That wasn't the case in 2018. What you saw was actually sort of a trend continuing where, you know, if you think of 2010 as maybe the real low point for Democrats, and then, you know, 2012 and 2014 sort of part of that, but then it starts a shift going that we sort of are seeing take shape, at least where we probably are witnessing a more competitive electoral system that started a little bit in 2016, definitely picked up in 2018. And the question is, are those blips or is that the beginning of a trend that we're going to see more of in 2020? We expect there to be higher turnout. But again, Republicans have a difficult job here because on the one hand, as the electorate gets bigger, you bring in more infrequent voters, which tend to be younger voters, tend to be more likely tend to be, you know, let's say more likely to be voters of color and more likely because of those characteristics to lean towards the Democratic Party. So on the one hand, Republicans are looking at this election in 2020 thinking, you know, we're expecting to see a bigger electorate than we saw even in 2018. And that probably doesn't bode well for us. On the other hand, you've got President Trump at the top of the ticket, wildly Republican, you know, popular with Republican voters, but also wildly unpredictable right, in terms of what he's going to do from one moment, you know, to the next and how that's going to affect the electoral environment here. And so what we're seeing is Republicans and that sort of this, this what's going on here, this broader picture, trying to distinguish the Republican Party of Texas from any of these external factors. Now, whether they can actually do this or not is really kind of an open question. And they've, they've approached this differently, but this is not a new thing, as you said. Right. And Trump does make it more complicated for reasons you talked about. Now, it's good to, I think, underline, and, and there's some other material that we talked about on this, that this is not new. Right. I mean, Texas Republicans have a history as they have, even in their days in the wilderness back in the you know 70s, 80s, and certainly uh, is part of the 21st century, they've got a history of trying to distinguish themselves from the national party. Right. It's important to say this is not about Trump alone. Just Trump, right. I mean, you know, pre-Trump, um, we saw this a lot, particularly during the Obama presidency when Texas Republicans made a point of contrasting themselves with a vastly unpopular Congress and federal government in Washington, D.C. Now, one might think back and say, well, sure, if there's a Democrat in the White House, Obama, uh, President Obama was in office from basically 2009 through 2017, you're pretty obviously going to contrast yourself with a Democratic president. But Republicans had control of Congress, one house or the other, for some periods, both during that presidency. And there was a lot of contrasting going on between what was going on in Washington, D.C. and what the Texas Republican brand was about. And I think, you know, that was really clear in the way that the Tea Party wave sort of helped provide a contrast for that. And and exhibit one, and that was Ted Cruz, who ran in 2012 and ran not only against Obama, but against congressional Republicans. And then when he got there, uh, as a you know, as a as a Republican in a Democratic majority Senate, set about fighting with his colleagues, including a lot of the Republicans. Yeah, and I mean to bring the public opinion into this, you know, even with Republicans in control of Congress, Republican voters in Texas still overwhelmingly view Congress negatively. Now this, and we can we've seen this change hand in the UT Texas Tribune polling where you have Democrats in either partial or full control of Congress. We move to Republicans in control of Congress, and it doesn't make. I mean, it makes a difference in Republican evaluations of Congress, but it's the difference between like 
an 11 percent approval rating among Republicans or less and a 20 to 30 percent approval rating among Republicans or even less than that. And so, I mean, that's sort of the piece here that's kind of key to understand, which is that, you know, Texas Republicans are often trying to say, hey, all the problems that you see in Washington that are, you know, the responsibility mostly of Democrats, but also of, of some Republicans that's not what's going on here. We are dealing with the serious issues, and you should consider that when you go into the voting booth. And we saw that used the foil in the legislature, and we're going to see it used selectively as a foil in the election. And in fact, even you know Greg Abbott used that to some extent when he ran for re-election in 2018 and distinguished himself from the Senate race, did much better. Much of Abbott's campaign messaging, certainly the the broad public messaging in his TV ads— emphasized the Texas economy, doing things for Texas, that, you know, the Texas was doing great because of the Texas Republican style of government and really didn't reference the national environment very much. Well, and a, good, and a good example of how, you know, sort of, of that dynamic and the way that, you know, the president intersects with this came up last week with the tariffs, right? Right. So there was the, I th- I'll call it a tariff scare. Does that work? I th- you know, yes. <laughs> for Texas. Okay. So as you know, you you probably heard something about, or maybe not, right? The uh, President Trump threatened placing a tariff on Mexican goods coming into the United States at five percent first, and then for each month would increase it by five percent, assuming that te- that Mexico didn't basically substantially or completely stop illegal immigration into the U.S. It was characteristically vague about what that threshold right. was actually going to be. We don't know what that would, would mean or whether that was really, you know, anyway. But the point is, there was some Mexico had to do more. And this was supposed to be a way to create leverage to, to lead them to do more to stop illegal immigration. Well, this is a this was a tricky area for, for Republicans in general, but Texas Republicans in, in particular. You know, Texas, is, you may or may not know this, but I mean, Texas is economy is heavily interconnected with trade with Mexico and with trade with Mexico, both in terms of the things we produce and the supply chains where goods pass back and forth between, you know, basically Texas and Mexico. It's part of the production cycle, but also in terms of, you know, various things that we import to to Texas from Mexico, but also we export a lot of things to directly to Mexican consumers. Right. Mexico is, is Texas's number one international trading partner. Now, on one hand, that's not shocking. We do share a no long border, and there's a lot of trade. Laredo is one of the biggest ports of entry, I think, in the country. And so, you know, I, I think just to, to spin that out, this puts Texas Republicans in an awkward position because this is a policy that as soon as it was threatened, and you never really know when the president is going to follow through on threats that don't seem to make policy sense or not. Texas Republicans are hearing from important constituencies in their state, particularly in the business community, but also in the border areas. Mm-hmm. So as soon as this was announced and it was and it began to be taken seriously, Texas Republicans were in kind of a, a jam here because public opinion has been very foggy and shady, particularly among Republicans on trade issues. I mean, Republicans used to be very pro what we call free trade, and free trade is the principle in which you should have minimal tariffs and really encourage trade across international trade as being good for the for the country. Hey, what's a tariff? A tariff is a tax on an imported good. Thank you. So the tariff of 5% 
you can just you can look at that and when you say that the tariff is going to be on absolutely everything it's pretty easy to start make calculations of economic cost and it's on everything from you know employment to the value of trade to pr- consumer prices and so the negative repercussions of this in Texas were going to be pretty substantial. Texas was going to be one of the states that was hardest hit, and the media coverage was on this pretty fast. Yeah, and this is where you see sort of Republican elected officials trying to to walk a fine line here, because on the one hand, you have a set of voters who either don't really understand the importance of trade to the Texas economy or increasingly view free trade and trade between basically the U.S. and Mexico and Canada and the deals that have facilitated that extremely negatively. At the same time, you have a very popular president, again, amongst Republican voters, proposing something that is meant to combat illegal immigration, which is the number one priority issue for Republican voters. On the other side, you have something, as you laid out, that would clearly have a large negative impact on the Texas economy. And so what you saw was Republican elected officials trying to sort of walk a fine line between not necessarily pushing back against the president on the one hand, because they don't, you know, again, they don't want to be seen in opposition to him. But on the other hand, recognizing the reality of the fact that this could wreck the economy, (laughs) you know. Right. I mean, you know, I, I think maybe the little missing piece here that helps make this a little more clear is that even though we're sitting here treating it as an accepted fact that the tariff would be bad for the economy in Texas. Awareness of that among the public is, to put it mildly, probably pretty uneven. Right. When we've asked about whether, for example, NAFTA and tra- or trade agreements more, more broadly are good or bad for the economy, public opinion is pretty divided with a lot of people actually saying they just don't know. Yeah, usually about 40% plus. Right. And so... The real, I mean, the nub of the danger here, if you're an elected official, is you, you could get hit coming and going. You could come out opposed to this, mm-hmm. and then they had they done the had they done the tariff, mm-hmm. and then there had been an economic backlash. People might have changed their minds, and then asked you why you didn't do anything about it. Yeah. Now you may be sitting here thinking, why are we talking about this thing that ultimately did not happen? But this is the point, right? right. The point is, this is why it's so. Uh, why it's so important, at least seemingly important among Republican elected officials in Texas, to separate the GOP brand here, the Republican Party brand, from anything that's going on in what is a relentlessly national political news environment that focuses on everything that the president do, is doing, the Democrats are con- and Congress are doing. I mean, and honestly, in, in the various, you know, other you know, potential scandals that the media might uncover between now and Election Day. So this is the beginning of the process whereby Republican elected officials try to insulate the Republican brand in Texas from anything else. Now, whether they can be successful at that, I mean, it's a pretty tall order. Or whether they need to be. Or whether they need to be. They may not need to be. Maybe the Democrats don't run very many, you know, a good, strong candidate at the top. Republicans do come out to vote. And the Republican Party, Republican candidates in the Republican Party are able to use their, bring their advantages to the table in Texas one more time. Yeah. And have a pretty good election cycle by and large. Yeah. And let me just, you know, real quick, I mean, we weren't going to talk about this, but I think it's worthwhile on this. You know, some of the advantages that the Republicans have here in Texas that are worth mentioning are, you know, one, they do hold all of the statewide offices. So the fact is, is that Greg Abbott can go out and do a news interview with any reporter at any time 
and talk about what he wants to talk about. And that's a huge advantage that Democrats don't really have. And this is true of the lieutenant governor to some degree. It's probably also true to a lesser extent of the attorney general. But the fact is that they have a broader access to the media landscape. They also, you know, rely on more reliable voters. We kind of alluded to this, you know, before, but you know, Republican voters tend to be older and whiter than the state's population as a whole, and even as the registered voter pool as a whole. But those voters are more likely to turn out and vote than younger non-white voters historically. And so that's something that they can lean on. Additionally, because of all their success, they have a strong party organization, right? And so they have extensive voter lists. They know who's voted when, who's reliable, who's less reliable. And they even have you know examples of where and how they might contact these people and increase their probability of voting. They also have a lot more, you know, additionally to the sort of the party organization resources, they also have a lot more financial resources. You know, Greg Abbott being in the governor's office, having the power that he has, has been a prolific fundraiser. And even though he's not on the ballot, he is definitely going to be spending some of that money to maintain Republican majorities in both the Texas House, the Texas Senate, and maybe even, you know, try to get into, well, probably can't get involved in the congressional races, I guess, because of the way that money is, well, he probably could though, but probably get involved in some of those congressional races yeah. as well. So all these are advantages that you know Republicans have here that might mean that even if it's a big year for Democrats and even if a Democrat is elected president, it might not make a difference in Texas given this well of, of advantages that they already hold. Right. And so that's that's really framing how Republicans are trying to communicate to the media right now. And that's and, and so that gives you a sense as you read the news of something to read into it. I think, you know, one more structural advantage that Republicans have is that Texas is a state in which the election process and the voting rules, by and large, make it a little bit harder to vote here than it is in a lot of other states. Things like uh, the voter ID law, even though that's been trimmed back, uh, extensive voter registration requirements, uh, no same you know, which includes no same day registration. Um, there's early voting here, but the early voting stops. You know, there's a considered, lag between early a relatively voting and election narrow window. Day. So, so ultimately, Republicans have also been able to manage the electoral pro the the election process through their control of state government and the legislature um, to to put significant barriers in the way of voting. And it's not we say significant. That's comparative. But if you think about the fact that. You know, there are some states now where you can register to vote online. There are states with same-day registration. Uh, there are states with mail-in voting. Um, it's comparatively harder to vote in Texas, and that is a policy decision, even though it's usually not framed that way, that Republicans make. And we've seen that come up recently, too, in terms of um, Republican efforts that kind of blew up a little bit in their face in the last few months to try to purge and and to try to purge the voter registration process. So talk a little bit about the background of the secretary, the former secretary of state, David Whitley. Right. And this also just to connect this to the other piece. I mean, this this is also something that Democrats are really focused on. So if Republicans are trying to insulate the Republican brand from sort of the national discussion. Democrats in Texas, I think, are trying to figure out what they should point to about that Republican brand here to motivate their voters. And, and at least one of the, the candidates, one of the big candidates, involves uh, David Whitley, who was nominated by Greg Abbott to be the Secretary of State in December of 2018. So he so he became and he so he becomes acting Secretary of State, awaiting 
ratification or uh, uh, the ratification of his nomination, confirmation of his nomination by the Texas Senate for right. the Constitution. So before that, Whitley had been working uh, for Abbott since 2004, had basically grown up with the governor in a lot of ways. He goes, he becomes nominated secretary of state. In December, in January of 2019, his office identifies 95,000 voters who they claimed were non-citizens as part of what they described as sort of a routine cleaning of the voter rolls. And they said, well, not only that, we think about 50,000 of these people have are non-citizens that have voted in Texas elections. Which would be illegal. Which would be illegal, right? And this is sort of something that, you know, in this sort of this long-running debate, war, whatever you'd call it, over you know voting and election rules, the idea that there are a lot there's a lot of illegal voting going on is something that's claimed a lot, but but very rarely found in practice uh, or really at all. Very rarely, yeah. right? It's usually a couple people here and there, but it's never something so systematic. So the idea that he had you know that they had uncovered fifty thousand non citizens voting illegally was a big deal. They had a splashy press release about it. They took the data, they referred it to the counties, where the counties were then supposed to send letters to all these voters basically saying, prove your citizenship status within 30 days or we're taking you off the voter rolls. The attorney general said and, he would investigate illegality. Well, and they referred it to the to the attorney general, the current attorney general, Ken Paxton, looked for any criminal prosecutions. The president tweeted about it as an example of the illegal voting that's going on. Well, pretty quickly after that, I mean, within days, first thing that happened was the counties basically started saying, especially in smaller counties where they actually know a lot of the people said, hey, there's a bunch of people here who, who shouldn't be on this list. You know, I know I know Mary and she was naturalized four years ago. And then actually civil rights groups pointed out that the data was likely to be flawed because they were using Department of Public Safety data, basically driver's license data. So the idea is that people come in, they get their driver's license. When they get their driver's license, they should check whether they have to check whether they're a citizen or not. The thing that happens is, is that then those people go and, and later may have registered to vote. But at no point in time do they have to update the Department of Public Safety as to whether they became citizens or not. So there's a lag in that data. And it turns out, you know, Texas is a big state. We naturalize a lot of people every year. And so it's actually, you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, could look like they were non-citizens based on the data that they had because they indicated to the DPS that they weren't, but were registered to vote who in between those two points in time may have become citizens. And basically, the main thrust of the legal arguments against this was this is a flawed process that is specifically targeting naturalized U.S. citizens, which basically it was. That's what it turned out to be. So, you know, this was found out really quickly. Whitley had, you know, pretty contentious hearings where I would actually say, you know, state He didn't help himself. He did not help himself. I mean, state senators gave him a lot of chances to take responsibility for what had happened or to say that a mistake was made. And he really was unwilling to do that. Uh, you know, basically he, along with Abbott, then pointed fingers at the DPS, at Department of Public Safety, saying this was bad data and that was the problem. Uh, you know, but at no point did he take responsibility for it or, you know, for the responsibility for referring, you know, for crim to, to the attorney general's office for criminal referrals, what's based on flawed data. And to, you know, kind of wind it up a little bit. I mean, they evidence came out strongly suggesting that there was not due diligence done with the data, that this was, there was a partisan tinge to the motivation here, given the speed with which other political actors, in particular the attorney general, picked this up. Mm -hmm. um, and recently it came to light that it seemed like the governor's office was more involved in this, at least the initiation of this, of this cleaning of the voter rolls, than had been... Uh, 
made made clear to anyone and you know until it very recently had been clarified had shall been clarified, we say yes. we don't want to say admitted although that may be close um right. and so what you know Whitley wound up not being confirmed um you know it was one of the sort of things that in the in the wind down of the session and as you were saying uh, this was something that unified democrats in the legislature, um, there was no talking the Democrats out of it. The governor tried, the lieutenant governor tried, and none of the Democrats would budge. And so his nomination essentially died in the Senate uh, once the, the legislature went out of session. Two things to point out about this. One, we used it as transition. Control over the electoral system is inherent, you know, the, the election rules are inherently political. I mean, this is one of those things where people think about elections as this neutral process in which we make rules that maximize people's access to the system and that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, happy talking about how we want everybody to vote and be, be a good citizen. That's not always the case. Um, and the justification for this, which is a reasonable one on the surface is that you want to make sure that the that the election system is valid and clean and secure and that everybody who can vote is registered and should vote and that nobody that is not qualified to vote doesn't. But the boundaries here in terms of how you pursue that much more inher inherently political. So by transition, there's that. And then the second point here, I guess that's first point relates to the Republican advantage. Second point the election process is inherently political. Right. I would say, and this, and going to the, the overarching point in this discussion, I mean, you'd expect Democrats to potentially use this as a way to start to frame the next election. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's been pretty reasonably demonstrated in other states that, you know, when one party tries to mess with the rules and it seems to impact the voting rights of a particular other group, and in this case, the people who would most likely, who would have been impacted by this, you know, potential voter purge would have been, again, naturalized citizens, most likely foreign-born, not necessarily likely Trump voters. Right. Right. Under, under current circumstances. Under current yes. circumstances. And so, you know, you could see this being an issue that the Democrats will continue to talk about as a way to try to mobilize Democratic voters going into the 2020 election, especially because the outcome of that election is going to determine, you know, let's say control of the legislative chambers, which is going to affect the redistricting process here in Texas, which means after the census... There's a reapportionment of congressional seats, but also we need to redraw the lines around state house and state senate seats so they represent relatively equal sized populations. Like all the other things we've been talking about, that too is a political process, which makes the stakes for Democrats so high, but also a reason why you'd expect to see this issue brought up again and again to remind especially their uh, less frequent voters about the fact that, you know, in their mind, the majority party is not looking out for their interests. Right. So this is a, again, in strict political terms, a pretty good bundle of issues, you know, election, the election process and is a pretty good bundle of issues for Democrats right now. Okay. I think we're just about out of time. I wanted to flag a couple more things. We'll save them for next week. Uh, have a good week and we'll be back. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin. 